Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR and talent communities to you. Welcome to another episode of the HR Chat Show. I'm your host today, Bill Bannum. And in this episode, I am honored to be joined by the illustrious, super famous, pretty awesome Tim Sackett, president of HRU Technical Resources, a leading IT and engineering staffing firm. Tim has over 20 years of experience combined uh, executive HR and talent acquisi- in acquisition, uh, working for Fortune 500 companies in healthcare, retail, dining, and technology. He is a highly sought after national speaker on leadership, talent acquisition, and HR execution. He's also a prolific writer in the HR and talent space, writing for titles such as Fistful of Talent and his blog, The Tim Sackett Project. He's also a senior faculty member since uh, since earlier this year at the Josh Burson Academy. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bill. I appreciate you. I appreciate that introduction. That makes me sound way better than I am. I don't think so. So you're pretty famous and awesome. <laughs> um, so in fact, why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself in ter- terms of how famous and, and awesome you actually are? Because that was just a short intro. I'd love I'd love for you to tell listeners more about yourself. You know, um, I started writing, um, blogging in the HR space and in the, in the recruiting space um, a little over 10 years ago. And, you know, the crazy thing happens when you start putting um, stuff online, whether it's video, whether it's, you know, written People tend to believe um, what they see and read because they're like, oh, gosh, this person has a website or they're they're being published at this site or whatever it might be. Um, I don't know if I really know what I'm talking about, but I, I, I have enough content out there that people definitely um, think it is. So um, my wife always teases me. She says I'm a micro celebrity. There's, she says there's 13 HR ladies in the world that want their picture with you. So, you know, it's I guess there's there's that. <laughs> and and you're also a well-known um, event organizer, I think. You do events in, in uh, Michigan, and you work with loads of awesome people like William Thinkup. Uh, what what yeah. events are you involved with at, at the moment? Can, can, you, can you share any of those with us? Yeah, so I, I mean, I was, I'm, you know, I speak all over the world, and I, I get to attend, like, the, the best conferences and, and meet so many of these great kind of, like, speakers, international speakers, and, you know, really created really good relationships. And you know, one of the things that you understand, and I was I worked on the corporate side of HR and talent acquisition for a long time, was it's really expensive to send your team members to these conferences. You want to send them because they're great. They get to network, they hear great content. Like it's it's amazing, but it literally sometimes it's it's five to ten thousand dollars a person to get people to these conferences. And so I was talking with a couple of HR leaders in in the state that I live in for some big companies. And and we all agreed, like, we just, we want to send our teams. It's just fiscally, we couldn't do it. And we go, what if we just did our own? What if we just like, hey, you have a large health system. You have a big conference room that can hold 200 people. What if we just hold a conference that could fit 200 people? We'll invite our teams. We'll invite other people's teams. And then we'll invite all our friends that are speakers. Maybe we'll invite a couple of sponsors that will pay for the speakers travel, stuff like that. And we'll pick a time during the year when there's not a lot of big conferences. So the speakers are just basically sitting at home or they don't have a lot to do. Plus they're friends. So we could twist their arms and you know, kind of force them to come and, you know, buy them a great dinner and stuff like that. And so it worked out. So we started our own recruiting conference here in Michigan. Um, and that's what we do. We just kind of, we, we get somebody to host an organization or a corporation and, and I invite, you know, friends to come and speak. Um, and it's been widely popular. I think there's been a lot of other conferences that have popped up that have kind of copied that 
um, that group, that format, because it, it works really well. Um, you know, and I think the people really like to have a, a TA leader at a, at a midsize enterprise firm, be able to bring 10 of their recruiting team or something like that. You know, and, and we only charge, I mean, literally just to pay for our costs for food and stuff like that. So we're charging like a hundred dollars, right? So they're just like, oh my gosh, this is the, the best thing ever. So we sell out every event um, because we just basically give it away for that, for the most part, because our, our intent was great content close to home and make it affordable. And that, and that tends to work out really well. Now, if I was running a conference business, obviously that wouldn't work out really well. I would lose my shirt. Um, but that wasn't our intent. Our intent was just really great content, great learning, great development for our teams close to home versus these national. And again, I tell people there's still huge value in going to a national international conference. I, I still think you, they, they attract just a great, you know, community of people to come together that you'll learn better from, but if you can do it close to home, try it, put it together, see what happens. Maybe the first one you get 50 people, maybe you get a hundred, who knows, but it's, it's worth, I think, networking and doing that really well. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm also an organizer of, uh, local events. So we, we started yeah. off in, in Toronto, the Innovate Work series, and we're, we're now, we're now in Australia, the UK, across, uh, different regions in, in North America and, uh, and, and the Caribbean. And, um, I, I love it. I think it's I think it's awesome, Tim. But um, at the same time, it's a lot of work, man. It's it's a it's lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of work. <laughs> in, 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 from your experience, what what are the what are the biggest challenges with putting on a kick-ass event? But also, what are the things that make you smile? Yeah, I I mean, so for me, part of it is um, content is always king, right? So you have to have really great people to come in that can hold the stage. And whether they can hold the stage for 15 minutes or an hour or whatever that might be, you want to have great content um, to be able to deliver, you know. And so I think that's probably the most difficult piece is to develop um, an agenda that you know top to bottom. Because here's what's going to happen in, in an in-person conference is the morning everybody shows up and they're full of energy and they're at, you know, they have this anticipation. And so you want to, so you kick off with a really good speaker and it's like, oh, everything's great. Um, by the time you get to like in the afternoon, late afternoon, people are, their heads are so full. They just, and, they, and a lot of times you, you see this like afternoon where people just start to sneak out, right? It's like, oh, it's 3 p.m. And I, you know, I, oh, I got to, I got to have an appointment. I got to train. I got, you know, they just, and all of a sudden, like those, la like you save your last speaker, like that's so, the, the most awesome of the day. And the room is a half full because everybody left and it's not that they didn't want to stay and see this awesome speaker. It's like, but they just have been given so much information that they're almost overwhelmed by it. So part of that, right. Is trying to also adjust for the time. When I first started them, we would do full day. We would go like eight to five. And then we started to go, wait a minute, maybe nine to four. And then maybe, you know, nine to two and realizing that, five solid or six solid hours of content was enough. You didn't have to have eight or nine, or you didn't have to have a full day. Um, 10 to two um, with just the, the most dynamic speakers would be great. And people would pay for that and come. Um, and they would feel like they would leave almost wanting more, which you always wanted. I didn't want them to leave going, oh my gosh, I'm so exhausted by this day <laughs> because I just got beat down by, uh, you know, 20 speakers of content kind of thing. So. Um, so I think finding the right speakers is great. Having um, enough 
um, caffeine, coffee, drinks, sodas, food, all of that stuff. I, I'm always amazed. I always have a couple of people that will complain that, you know, oh, the last turkey sandwich was gone and I can't believe this. And I'm like, really? That's <laughs> that's what you're going to complain about. <laughs> you just had this great day of content with speakers that if you went to a national conference, you'd pay 2000 You paid $95 and you're going to complain that you, did, you didn't get a turkey sandwich. Instead, you had to have a, a ham sandwich or a salad or something. I don't know. So it's fully, I always find that stuff really funny. I once made the mistake of... Uh of getting some um the, the, okay so context is uh, i had to get a bunch of disposable cups for an event that i was doing <laughs> and uh and uh there weren't that many when, when i went to the store to pick some up and so i, I grabbed some polystyrene ones as well tim oh my goodness oh, big, big mistake big mistake how could you do that to the environment right right um so i was rightfully told off and i never made that mistake again but yeah people were very vocal about that um i don't know if you remember but you and i we, we met uh, a few years ago in the cayman islands when chris bailey invited a bunch of people to come down to yeah. uh, one, of, one of the disrupt hr events and by the way uh, one some... of my favorite places in the world to go i i mean my wife is pushing me to buy a house there <laughs> It's it's pretty nice, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of paradise. Um, yeah, and, and there was some there, there were some really big hitters there, some some major influences, uh, people like uh, William Tinkup and, and Jennifer McClure, and of course yourself. Uh, yeah. I, I'd I'd love to hear from from you as a big influencer in the space. Who who else do you who else do you read? Who else do you listen to? Who who are the who are the experts that you really pay attention to? You know, it's funny. I get that. I get that question. I get asked that a lot. Um, I just like people who read my blog will send me and they'll go, oh, we, I love your stuff, but who else, right? Who are the other people? Um, obviously, the people, the two people that got me started in the space were Chris Dunn, who to this day is probably my best friend. Like, you know, he, he, write, he write, um, writes at the HR Capitalist. And then also we um, run Fistful of Talent together. So a multi-contributor blog. And I still to this day read him every single time he posts. I still think he, his voice connects with me. And that's part of it is finding a voice that you connect with, right? Um, that you, you love to read. And I love the way his mind works. And then Lori Rudiman is a really close friend of mine. And, and she has a podcast now, um, Let's, Fix, Let, Let's Fix Work. She also has her blog, com, And she writes a lot as well. And again, another person who has a voice that is just willing to put it out there, right? And just say it like it is. Of course, you know, um, you know, William is is a is a brilliant writer, but um I, I I tend to actually read a lot of people outside of our space. Like I love I'm I'm just enthralled by the um the field of economics. Um and so I'll read a lot of different um different economic blogs. And partly for me that is also I'm very intrigued by like the data science side of stuff and numbers and how all this works, especially within our field. Because in HR and town acquisition, we have access to so much data. And I think if we really understood our data and used our data, we could be so much better at what we do. So I tend to to read a lot of that. And then like the, the like the grace, like I, I'm a huge Malcolm Gladwell fan. I'll read anything Malcolm writes. Again, he's just a great storyteller and I love how he connects dots and, and people like that. Um, you know, so I, I, I really enjoy, you know, that kind of stuff and I'm, and, and le- listening to more and more podcasts. And again, I'm a sports, you know, fanatic. I love college sports and pro sports. And so I'll, I'll, I'll listen to a lot of podcasts from that as well. 
I guess you're a Lions fan. If, if you're no, if you're Michigan. no, nobody can be a Lions fan. I don't think. I mean, unless you were unless you were forced to through like family connections and you grew up that way. Um, I grew up in Michigan and um, definitely had to watch the Lions futility my entire life. So I wouldn't call myself a Lions fan. I love I love football though. I'm, um, and we'll watch it. Um, but yeah, it's. I, and also, I, I you know been a, I'm a huge baseball fan. So also, I'll say I'm a Tigers fan and a Pistons fan from Detroit. But Lions, I try to stay away from. They just break your heart. So, <laughs> oh my, I'm, I'm I'm a big Blue Jays fan. So we won't go we won't go there. We'll, we'll, we'll continue well, on. Oh god, we could have an entire <laughs> podcast on that. I and I'm I'm in Lansing, Michigan, which is the affiliate of the Blue Jays. So we're we're hoping okay. the Blue Jays will actually play here. I mean, we've offered that our stadium up for them. So we'll see what happens. Oh boy. Jeez. Right. Um, moving rapidly on, ladies and gentlemen. Um, in fact, I, I just want to get a bit serious with you now. Um, yeah. It, it, it's pretty hard times right now. And the, 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 there are a lot of people out there uh, who, are, who are unemployed. You know, they're pretty steady jobs for many years and we're all living through a, a pretty good boom time. Um, but but there, there's some people out there with lots of years experience, but perhaps they don't, they, they don't now know what the heck to do. And they're thinking about, uh, uh, is this the right time to reskill to get back into in, in, into the jobs market? Um, yeah. I'd, I'd love I'd love to hear from you and any any tips for people out there uh, looking for jobs. Should they should they just take take a step back while while there's still this this low and 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 look at ways that they can reskill and add to their resumes that way and uh, and maybe maybe if you could share some insights in terms of mm-hmm. what what you've seen to be the most in demand jobs. For the, for the next 12 months because there are a lot of companies that haven't even started doing the real cuts yet. Yeah, um, yeah they're, they're right. still to come. So <laughs> what, what, what are the future-proof jobs? Where, where should be people be looking to pivot if, if that's the case? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean the, the easy ones, right, which are, I think, so difficult to reskill to or upskill to are going to be the tech, you know, we still need you know, developers and software engineers and, and data scientists and all of those folks. And they're going to be in demand for the next decade, um, electrical engineers and embedded engineers and stuff like that. But that's hard. I mean, unless you decide I'm fully going back to university and getting a brand new degree and doing all of that, which is, you know, four or five year commitment, you're not likely to upskill or reskill yourself to that. And so, you know, when people ask me and they want to take, like I get people all the time will say, oh, I want to pivot. I'm currently in sales or I'm currently in finance or whatever. And I want to be in HR. I'm like, that's great. But a lot of times, like I get this from salespeople all the time. Somehow they went to university for HR, but landed, uh, you know, uh, as an entry level into a sales job and started doing sales and and actually were pretty successful. And now they're making, let's say, you know, 85000 a year. And they're like, but I, you know, I really, I really want to get back to HR. I want to do HR. I'm like, that's great. But you have to then be willing to accept a job at around $40,000 US. And they're like, well, I can't do that. Like I, I will take a lateral move, but I can't, I can't take a step back. And I'm like, well, you're never going to then make that pivot because no one's going to hire you at 85,000 as an entry level HR person with no experience. And, and I think that's the disconnect, right? And um, you know, I, there's people will love or hate Gary Vanderchuk, Gary V. Um, he's the one I think that's most vocal about that. You know, you can do whatever you want to do if you're willing to adjust your lifestyle to making no money. Like if you say, Hey, my goal in life and the thing I love to do the most is pet puppies. 
If you want to pet puppies, great. Go pet puppies. You're probably not going to get paid. So you're going to have to live on no income. But if that's what you want to do and that makes you happy, figure out how to adjust your lifestyle to zero income. Find someone who's going to let you live on your couch or whatever. And you spend all day petting puppies. Good for you. We, we don't tend to want to do that. We want to either just stay lateral or go up, but we're not willing to pivot and make those, you know, the rescaling to what we would have to do, which I think is one of the most difficult things. I, I do think though, there's like, I truly am empathetic because I have so many friends right now who, you know, who have lost um, positions due to the COVID crisis and, and in really good recruiting jobs and HR jobs. You know, and the one thing I'll say is it's, it's a, you'll work harder at finding your next job than you were working in whatever job you had. Like finding a job is much more work than, than having a job. And you have to be not only willing to go and search and network and do all that job search stuff. At the same time, you have to show people that you're also upskilling, reskilling, um, continuing to, to sharpen the saw during this time. And what does that look like? Well, you know, it, you might decide like, oh, I'm in a once a week, I'm going to get together with a bunch of other you know, HR people or talent acquisition people. And we're going to discuss big problems and how to solve virtual hiring or whatever. Like you have to do something so that when you get into that, un- that interview and they go, OK, hey, you've been out of work for 90 days. Talk to me. What do you, how do you been, what have you been doing? How have you been keeping yourself busy that you have a story? Because the people that are going to hire you. They're going to hire the story. They're not going to hire the resume. Everyone's going to have basically the same resume, right? You're going to have this education. You're going to have this experience, blah, blah, blah. It all gets thrown on paper and you all have similar skill sets within 5% of each other. So at that point, then they hire the story, the person who has the best story. If your story is, well, I worked full time finding a job. I would, every day I just sat in front of my computer and waited for you know that, that email, that text. And I just kept applying, applying, applying. That's not a good story. That's not, I mean, again, it's, it's, it's might be legitimate. <laughs> it might be what you did, but it's not a good story. What else did you do? I went and volunteered at a senior center or I went and taught kids um, in my neighborhood math because I knew all the parents had their had remote learning and they were struggling with having their job and teaching their kids. And so once a week for two hours, I held in my garage a math class for, for all the kids in the neighborhood, something, right? I mean, that's what they're going to higher and i think that's what a lot of people miss okay thank you um you actually just mentioned something there that i, I did want to ask you about now and, and yeah. that is that that is barriers when it comes to the hiring process right now uh, because it is virtual a lot of people don't want to get get together in person or just can't get together in person um yeah what, what, what's the effect of that tim in terms of limiting uh the the ability of say a recruiter or, or indeed the, the direct hiring manager uh it, for for their ability to get a feel for the candidate, to connect with the candidate, and and vis-a-vis uh, for the candidate to get a feel for the, the the employer brand. I, you know, the one advice I would have for organizations, especially like TA leaders, recruiters, and hiring managers, would be they should go through the process of doing a virtual interview, um, because it is difficult. And in in you, what you would see is all those things that we see as recruiters. So if I'm a candidate and I'm at home and I'm on my laptop or my phone or whatever device I have to do this interview, understand that they're going to be so focused on the screen, more focused than when they're in person and you. So the lighting matters. You don't want to have a window behind you be backlit. The sound matters, how you sound. 
everything that you have. So like they're going to be looking at your background. So you almost have to set the stage. You are performing a TV show for them. And so even on video, you have to be more demonstrative. You have to be more engaging. You have to move your talk with your hands and, and be very dynamic because you're having to come across to multiple people on a screen is very different than when you're in person. Um, and so you try to tell people that you can't just be yourself. Like you were sitting across the table and be very like buttoned up in, in calm because that comes across as a dud on video. So the virtual thing is different, but it's, it's the, so the candidates are one issue of how you can, uh, how you can up yourself. The other part of it though, I think is missed is that most recruiters and most hiring managers have never done a virtual interview and yet they're judging people based on these virtual interviews, which is completely different than an in-person. I remember the first time I ever did a video interview, I was blown away at how difficult it was um, that you actually have a question and see the clock ticking down and this, the, and then looking at yourself on the screen and trying to, like there was so much going on that you lose concentration. Um, plus you can't see the eye contact. That's one of the, the biggest misses is when you're doing an interview in person, you're seeing the body language and the eye contact and everything from those you're talking with. And you're seeing the head nods and all this good stuff. And either you're feeling good or you're knowing that you need to adjust yourself a little based on, on those cues that we don't get in a virtual format. Oh man, I've got so many more questions for you, but we are running out of time. So <laughs> I just, I just need to pick one before I then ask you how listeners can sure. know about you. Um, okay, here's what I'm going to go with. Uh, you, uh, you recently wrote a post on uh, tipsacket.com in which you suggested a, a new role that uh, we'll see arise um, potentially over the next few months. Uh, I, I don't know how tongue in cheek this was, but if, if you're, if you were saying this is an actual thing, it probably happened. But uh, you called it a chief crisis officer. Can, can, yeah. you, can you tell, tell my listeners a bit about uh, the points you're you're making in that post? It wasn't wasn't tongue in cheek. I, I truly believe that we've had so many crises. I mean, you think of just COVID as one, and then the social justice issues. But if you think of even environmental or weather related or um, workplace shootings, like all the crises potentially that can happen in your organization. The hard part that we have is we don't necessarily have one person that owns it, right? If we have a sales problem, I have a chief sales officer, a chief revenue officer that's going to own sales, right? If I have an operations issue, I have a CEO who's going to own that operational issue and they're going to make sure it's fixed. That's their job. If we have a crisis, what we tend to believe is that, oh gosh, now everybody's involved, right? That Everyone's going to own this. A lot of times, like our general counsel, you know, chief legal officer will tend to maybe take on more ownership than others based on risk management and stuff like that. But the reality is even then, it's it's a spread responsibility. And I think that's why a lot of organizations fail in crisis is that they don't have someone who's their job to own and step up and take control and start telling people what to do, right? If our If a factory goes down, that COO, that chief um, operating officer, that plant manager, they will step up and start directing in a, in a crisis to get that plant back up and running because they know every second that it's down, they're losing money. In a crisis in an organization should be similar in ways that we, that we, that we figure this out. And so I, drew, I definitely believe 
that organizations based on what we're seeing and what we're going through will start to look at that. I already know organizations have this role, a few. I think what we'll see is a really growth of this where we'll say, okay, hey, chief crisis officer. And, you know, and it's not just about handling the crisis. Again, that's like the big kind of thing that they have to do. But it's also going to be how do we plan for crisis? How do we mitigate crisis? How do we go through that and make sure that we're doing a lot of those things that we should be doing just in case? And you see some of this with IT um, C, uh, CIOs, CTOs in terms of like their their network infrastructure, right? Where they're doing crisis, like what happens if we get hacked or what happens if the power goes out? And they'll do a bunch of this stuff. Well, again, if I'm a crisis officer, I want to make sure that stuff is being done and that we're testing, that we're continuing to maybe even do some some doomsday scenarios and different things at different parts of the organization to see how we react. Because I think those organizations that do a great job at mitigating crisis um, are the ones that end up really growing during crisis. And we see that a lot in organizations. Okay, thank you very much. I can think of a few people I know who might be good uh, chief crisis <laughs> yeah. officers. Um, yeah. But uh, that, that's that's pretty much all we got time for today. Before we wrap up, how can yeah. our listeners connect with and and learn more about you, Tim? Uh, TimSackett.com is the easiest way. You can Google me. Um, I always like to make the joke that there's two Tim Sacketts in the world. There's me, and then there's a truck driver chaplain out of Minnesota. I'm not the truck driver chaplain, even though that would be super cool if I was both guys. Um, <laughs> but I've stole all his SEO at this point. So, you know, um, more than likely, if you Google Tim Sackett, I'll be the first 100 pages. I joke with my friends, I'll never get a real job ever again because of, uh, you know, Google will, will uncover anything that I've said in my entire life. So. Okay, perfect. There's a competing Bill Bannum out there. He was uh, yeah. the CEO at Virgin Records or something. I don't know. Um, not, not, not a bad one, right? <laughs> not a bad one, no, but his SEO is pretty good. But that, that's a conversation for another time. Tim, that just leads me to say for today, sir, thank you very much for being a guest on this episode of the HR Chat Show. Thanks, Bill. Thank you for listening to the HR Chat Podcast, brought to you by the HR Gazette.